Hello and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko and here with me to, today is Martin Mazet. Martin is a men's work facilitator and consultant to fellow men's coaches. He is on a mission to help men tap into their authentic masculinity as well as, as, well as help create leaders of masculine transformation. Martin was born in Budapest, Hungary, and when not traveling, lives in Barcelona, Spain. He has been in the coaching industry since 2017 and currently focuses on helping fellow men's coaches build thriving businesses. As a men's coach, Martin has created an online tribe of 1,600 members, self-published two books, worked with a variety of clients from tech CEOs and coaches to IT and health workers, and most importantly, served his clients and generated life-changing results. Please help me welcome Martin to the podcast. Hello, Martin. Hello, Hector. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for being here. So today we're going to be talking about men, men's issues, masculinity. So it goes without saying, because we are talking about gender, that this episode is for persons who identify as male. It doesn't mean that if you are female or non-binary that you shouldn't listen to this episode, but we are specifically talking about persons who identify as male, correct? That's correct. Excellent. So let's start it off and tell us, who is Martin Meze? Yeah, th thank you for that, that uh, amazing introduction. I was very humbled by it. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to put this out there. I think that the discussions around men's mental health and men's well-being are extremely important. But if you do not identify as male or you are not a man, uh, do not be discouraged to still listen in because there might be some very um, insightful things that are discussed in this podcast. And Hector, I really appreciate you taking the time to make this happen. Um, so like you mentioned, my name is Martin Mizei. I am a men's work facilitator and I consult men's coaches on their coaching businesses and coaching practices. And in everyday life, I just try to be the best friend, brother, fiance, and the cat's dad that I can be. <laughs> Excellent. And when we talk about the male gender, let's take it all mm -hmm. the way back to our caveman days. When sure. during our caveman days, it was men, the ones that went out, hunted for basically the entire day, and they came mm -hmm. back and provided food for their families. Um, mm -hmm. And some men stayed back maybe to defend the cave. And inside the cave or around the cave would be the women and children. And so mm -hmm. that behavior tended to keep going because as cavemen men in the in that tribe would become stronger and stronger and stronger leading to the position in which the man goes out to work or hunt and the woman stays at home and this this continued on for hundreds and maybe even thousands of years and so would you agree that there is a precedent of men being the ones that are responsible for, quote unquote, going out, working, uh, being the breadwinner, the ones mm -hmm. that go out and work and get the money to bring home to the family. Isn't that how men have been doing the job of being a man since, since our caveman days? Yeah, great question. Well, I think the way you described it is our current understanding of how gender roles came into the 
shape that we know the most today. Yeah, that's correct. All right. So we will jump off from there and say mm -hmm. to be a man in this world, you are to go out and find a job and work hard to provide for your family. Mm -hmm. And there's been some pushback on that because it is a lot of pressure, but there's still that other side of, well, men have privilege. Men have this influence. Men have this authority, power. And yes, they have to show that they're worthy of such things. But is that a lot mm -hmm. of pressure for men nowadays? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the point that you're making is very valuable. That's exactly that double-sided sword of pressure that we face as men. Um, on one hand, being the fact that we are, and I personally don't deny this whatsoever, in a privileged position today. It's true that as a man, you have less reasons to feel fear when walking down the street late at night, right? Or you might face much less um, dangers of um, sexual assault or verbal assault or abuse at your workplace. These things are true. However, at the same time, you do face expectations from society that, like you said, have this view of you as the go-getter caveman who is meant to hunt for food and um, protect the cave. Well, it's modern equivalent, right? So I think that men today face both of those pressures, the fact that you are privileged and you have to somehow make up for that. But at the same time, you're still expected to be the leader and provider and you have to fulfill that role as well. And um, we are seeing some very interesting, perhaps concerning things unfold in our society thanks to these two pressures. Now, when we say society is putting this pressure on us, it's not necessarily the women, us ourselves, men themselves are putting pressure on other men to be and to hold up this status. Yeah, I would say that the culture that we have created is putting this pressure on you know we all are just nodes in a humongous network in western society and the conversation like the one we're having right now the multitude of conversations that are constantly happening and the way that they're going make up our different political economical sociological views right and so in the current context that we are viewing things from there's really two opposing sides, two different lenses, but they both put, or perhaps more, but two main ones that both put pressure, uh, both put pressure on, on men. And I think that we are doing this through ourselves and as, as individuals, the way that we engage in these discussions, the way that we engage in individual behavior. And yeah, also as a society, as a culture, but it's not specifically men or women or even a certain generation, I would say, it is us humans, individuals, and groups. So you're saying that men put this pressure on themselves, not necessarily society? That's a much more simple and hard-hitting way of putting it, yes. <laughs> but it doesn't help when one of the most listened to podcasts in the United States and probably around the world is of... Mm -hmm a man's man. And I'm talking about the Joe Rogan experience. If you were to mm -hmm. ask me, 
who is the manliest man you know in the world right now living, I would mm-hmm. probably say Joe Rogan. He is <laughs> a man's man, right? And he doesn't apologize for it. He is a UFC lover. Uh, everything that he talks about on his show is, you know, in from a paradigm of a man. And I'm not apologizing mm-hmm. for it, et cetera, et cetera. How do you feel or how do you see Joe Rogan and his influence in society? Mm. Well, I am personally, first off, this is a biased opinion because I'm a huge Joe Rogan fan. I'm a fan as a UFC commentator. I am a martial arts fan to, to start off. So I'm a big fan of his UFC commentary. Not a big fan of his comedy, but that's a personal taste thing. And I am a very big fan of his podcast, actually. But at the same time, you know, what we forget is that the stars, the celebrities, the entertainers that we listen to, that we follow, they're still human, you know, and humans have bias. Humans make mistakes and humans are not perfect. So I don't think Joe Rogan is perfect or that his views are perfect. In fact, I see a lot of flaws in his views. Uh, that he expressed on his podcast, but I am personally one to enjoy his podcast very much, regardless of how flawed the views he's expressing on the podcasts are, because they're fun and they're entertaining. So, <laughs> and you excuse the flaws because he is entertaining. Can you clarify that for a little bit? Sure. Well, I excuse his flaws because I think that um, the power that he's being given with his platform is not a power that he chose. You know, I think the podcast that he has started out as a small, well, in fact, I don't think this is a fact. It started out as a friendly project between him and a few buddies of his. And it always had this sort of locker room talk, you know, uh, having a beer with the bros sort of vibe, right? That was always the the idea behind the podcast and that has remained the idea you know and um i think that if you were to listen in on a conversation between me and my friends on a friday night when we're just hanging out you might hear just as silly opinions and you might hear us quote statistics that are completely off and it should probably be fact checked but it will be a very fun conversation to listen in on and you will probably you know get Uh, familiar with our personalities and even start feeling like uh, we're friends and would love to listen in again. However, that would not make our opinions, you know, factual. And I think that's kind of what happened with Joe Rogan. His podcast started off being uh, a series of conversations like this. It got extremely famous exactly because it has this vibe of authenticity. And then now that he's the biggest podcast in the world, he has the biggest podcast in the world. He's expected to speak like a scientist or like some sort of a leader that he's not and he never wanted to be and he never signed up for. And the people who expect him to be that, I think, are just not really familiar with his uh, character um, as an entertainer or, or the story of the podcast. So I don't really I think anybody who listens to this podcast take all the information that's being shared there with a pinch of salt because it is not a. Uh, science journal sharing you know peer-reviewed results of studies it's a bunch of guys and sometimes women sitting down together and having a good conversation i would give you that 100 percent. it is mm. locker room talk it is sounds like he's at a bar with his friends and yeah he has mm-hmm. millions of listeners but he does have guests on 
who do share facts and figures. And he responds accordingly. But again, he's responding from this paradigm of, hey, you know, I think that people should be doing this or this is what I do. Um, so with all respect, I do hope that, yeah, he does. And even when he does make a mistake or if he, you know, comes out and says, don't listen to me, I'm a moron. Right. And I, yeah. you have to give him credit for that. Yeah, exactly. How, how do you feel about his podcast, Hector? Like we spoke before the podcast, I listened to mm -hmm. Joe Rogan as a social and society issues paradigm. I, I view him as, okay, mm -hmm. let me hear what 3 million other people are listening to. Let right. me hear yeah, what yeah. he has mm -hmm. to say, not necessarily as mm -hmm. a fan, but as an outside spectator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And I do see his influence. I see that. He said, I have been taking ivermectin because I got COVID. And then about three or four days later, I will see people on Facebook saying, you should take ivermectin if you have COVID. And so mm. I see his influence. I see the, the ramifications mm. of, and whether ivermectin is good or bad, I'm not here to discuss that. I'm here to discuss his mm. influence and yes. his overall persona as as a man's man which which i do think again if you ask me who is a man who is the man's man mm -hmm. in the world i would say definitely top five joe rogan yeah yeah i understand so, where you're coming from <clears throat> so let's go ahead and move on what would one of the topics that you talk on is masculine leadership what is masculine mm -hmm. leadership to you yeah, great question. Yes, I do love the topic of masculine leadership. Well, I guess a good place to start would be to define what is masculine energy. So what do we mean when we say masculine? What do I mean when I say masculine? When you look up masculine in the dictionary, you will simply find the definition of being related to men. So that does not help much. When I say masculine, I'm talking about in a little bit more of an esoteric sense, the energy that initiates penetrates and leads. And this masculine energy can be observed in social roles, yes, but it can also be observed in philosophy and spirituality. And <clears throat> this type of energy includes in itself leadership. So when I say masculine leadership, I mean the type of leadership that comes from a place of love, compassion, and kindness, because that's actually what's required of a man to lead a group of people or a group of individuals towards the greater good. Leadership that does not include these qualities and is simply tyranny, or maybe in other words, not leadership at all, right? It's, a, it's, it's some sort of control, but it's not leadership. So I like to talk about masculine leadership in this way because I see that we are lacking this in today's world. We, we have leaders today and uh, continue to produce leaders that try to overcompensate for their own insecurities or try to um, gain and keep control to balance their own fears, but they ignore what healthy masculine leadership could and should look like. 
And you said that there are masculine leaders now that are insecure. Mm-hmm. Can you go a little bit more into that? What is it about maybe being a male in a leadership position that mm-hmm. would make someone insecure? Well, I don't think that somebody that a male in a leadership position, um, being a male in a leadership position produces insecurity per se. I would say that men in today's society live with a lot of insecurity. We live with insecurity because of the pressures that we talked about before, the pressure of having to be the protector and provider and the backlash we receive when we fail at that. And so this leads to a lot of men being extremely fragile right? I think a lot of us can relate to uh, the fear of losing face in front of others, losing that masculine image. Oh, I am not the manly man people thought I was. I have to protect that image of me being the perfect masculine uh, manly macho man that I am supposed to be because I was born this gender. And in order for that to happen, I can never express emotion. I can never admit flaws. I can never express empathy because those are signs of weakness and so i will maintain this image and i will maintain absolute control in order to stay within this image that i'm supposed to embody i think that is the paradigm that a lot of men live in today no matter how much power they have you know uh, this might be the janitor at your high school that's living in this paradigm and this might be your local of representative, right? This might be a local politician. This might be your chief of police, right? Um, but you don't know people are living in this paradigm until they are given power, right? Being given power exposes someone's character immediately. And I think it doesn't take a lot to look at today's leaders, whether that's political or, you know, I usually look at political leaders and leaders in, in business and innovation. And it is still, those are still male dominated areas make of that what you will, you know, that's, that's just facts. And, uh, and I look at the state of the world where I see a lot of hope and a lot of potential, but definitely a lot of fear, a lot of greed, a lot of unhealthy levels of attachment. And um, it is not difficult to connect the dots and see if, well, most of our leadership are males and there are these, um, there's the social context of being male that we discussed earlier there's definitely a connection here, right? We have done something to produce the leaders that we have today that are creating the results that we experience as a society. Let's go ahead and follow up that question with an image. Well, it's not necessarily an image. It's a quote from an author Mm -hmm. named J. Michael Hopf. I think that's how you pronounce Mm -hmm. his last name. It's H-O-P-F. I forget the novel, Mm -hmm. but his quote has been cited by many, including Joe Rogan on his podcast. And let's go Mm -hmm. ahead and take a look at it together. And we, Mm -hmm. and obviously this is an audio podcast, so we will uh, obviously take it apart for our listeners. So the first part of the quote is, hard times create strong men. And the images of men at war uh, because they have been mm-hmm. through hard times. And so let's say that the men, these strong men, hard times create strong men. These strong men win the war. So now there's mm-hmm. peace, right? There's peace. And so the next line says, strong men create good times. And so there's an image of men that come came back from war and now there's peace. And now it's creating these good times for this city. 
And now it says uh -huh. good times create weak men. So maybe a generation has gone by and all of these soldiers die or pass away and that these boys that were born during the good times have now grown up without war, without struggle, and now are weak. So good times create weak men. And then the last image is weak men create hard times. So without the bravery, courage, and fighting and, and stuff that these boys grew up, did not grow up with, now as adults, we're, they're paying the price as a society because now they're going through bad times because all of the men are weak. What is your mm -hmm. initial reaction to, to this quote? Yeah. So the complete quote is hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. My initial reaction to this quote is that, you know, as a speaker and a content creator and an author, a writer, it's a very well put together quote. It is a quote that has a lot of potential to go viral. And I think it has gone viral. It's probably the quote that uh, a quote that has been shared a lot in the past year. And so first, I don't even really put any sort of uh, opinion on it. I just look at it and say, wow, that's a, that's a very well put together quote. <laughs> that's my that's my initial reaction. Mm. Uh, so I guess we, I'll we, follow up with. The, yes. I guess the big question, because mm -hmm. a lot of men, especially men, I've not heard this from mm -hmm. women, uh, mm -hmm. men have alluded that mm -hmm. right now we're on the last line. Weak men create mm -hmm. hard times. And I'm like, yeah, that's I don't I don't agree with that. We have mm. men still volunteering to join the military all over the world. Wars are still going on. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes. Right. If you see a man and and he's vaccinated or wearing a mask and is afraid to catch covid, it doesn't doesn't make him weak. He just doesn't want to get sick. Uh, I don't think right. that we have weak men and that we are creating hard times. I, I don't think that we're yeah. there now. Now, having mm -hmm. said that, I don't know mm -hmm. if to place us where we are now, 2021 mm -hmm. slash 2022 in one of these yep. categories i don't know if if mm -hmm. it would be appropriate to put ourselves there but i like you mm -hmm. like the quote i think it makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. but i haven't really put much thought into where we are i just know we're not on the yep. last on the last one <laughs> yeah i think uh, that's fair enough look um a quote like this first of all is very valuable because it is thought provoking and uh, because apart from provoking thought, it also provokes discussion, the kind of discussion we're having right now. And I think at that point, it has already achieved its, its true purpose um, for me. You know, if I was an author and put out a powerful quote like this, I would hope that people read it and have a discussion like this around it. Now, it also has another use, which is to um, use it to validate some sort of political agenda. And I think that's kind of what we've seen happen with this quote a lot. It, and, and it really plays into one edge of the sword, the double-edged sword that we discussed earlier, which is that men are not tough enough. Men are used to be tougher. You know, the typical image of, you know, men used to go to war, the, 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 the Battle of Normandy is pictured, and now men are like hiding indoors with a mask on and et cetera. And, um, I completely respect if that's somebody's personal opinion, 
but I would advise anybody who thinks that they know the ultimate truth and their stance, their political stance is the ultimate stance, to try to take a step back and look at the bigger picture, because that is a very oversimplified view of our history, of our society, where we come from and, and where we're headed. The truth is that there is at the same time thousands and thousands of lines unfolding where we are living better in certain aspects than previously. And then we're also living worse in other aspects than previously. So perhaps in the past, we would have had a much healthier diet because, diet because we're hunter-gatherers, right? At the same time, we were also extremely prone to famine because we could not predict what kind of food we could scavenge, right? And we didn't have advanced medicine. So even though we had a healthier diet and maybe we had six-pack abs and were in incredible shape, there wasn't much of a point if you could, you know, get a wound infected and die, right? And I think the same thing applies to reminiscing over the times of the Roman Empire or reminiscing over the times of, you know, the late 20th century when men used to wear suits and hats. Men didn't wear suits and hats because they were more manly. They wore suits and hats because there was no other clothing for men to wear. It was simply not okay for you to put on any other clothing. They didn't do it out of a desire to be more manly. They did it out of the social pressure or at the evolution of our consciousness was simply at an earlier stage. And so I think that squeezing the history of humanity and the evolution of uh, gender norms or masculinity into a quote like this or into you know this overly simplified view is a big mistake. And what I would encourage everyone who's kind of involved in this very important um, discussion that we're having about manhood and masculinity and femininity and the roles of genders and et cetera, is to take a step back, um, decompress a little bit, right? Recognize that everyone involved in this discussion is a fellow human being. At the end of the day, we all just want uh, peace, love, understanding, acceptance, community, family, friends. That's what we want. And we just have slight disagreements on what is the best way for everyone to get there. And so when it comes to this quote, is it true? Is it not true? In my personal opinion, you know, are we living through tough times right now because of weak men? No, I, I would strongly disagree with that. My personal opinion is that we are living through one of the most abundant times that has ever been in, in human history. We do not know of another civilization that has created this level of technology, this standard of living, um, this, you know, the war that we experience today and the poverty that we experience today, even though it is there and we should do our best to eradicate it, and get and, and strive for peace. Peace is the least that we've had throughout our history. So we're actually living through some of the best times with all of the turmoil that we're experiencing now. So if anything, this quote says that was achieved by great men, right? And perhaps that goes to the point of okay, I guess these good times are supposed to create weak men. Now has that process already begun? Mm. I personally fail to see that because I don't see weak men becoming a new standard. I see actually more being expected of men, the levels of productivity and the levels of what a man is capable of achieving within a lifetime. Those boundaries have been pushed so far. And, you know, we have scientists and academics and athletes and leaders step forward and push these boundaries further and further every day. So in fact, I see these good times create 
even greater and greater men, you know? And whether that is the average man or whether that is just sort of outstanding examples that's being created, well, that's another discussion to have. And that's something I kind of doubt that we're able to get the data on, really. And that's why it really comes down to your personal perspective of which one is true. Thank you, Martin. Thank you so much. And yes, I, I slightly kindly agree with you that we've had strong men and now we're in the good times, regardless of the pandemic. I think that we are in good times, technology-wise, health-wise, um, mm -hmm. just, just community-wise. And I do not see that these good times are leading to weak men. I truly don't. Mm. Now, again, mm. like what you've been alluding to a little bit is the political parties. I do yeah. see that one political party tries to degrade men into weak mm. because of their political choices. And obviously that's not mm. cool, but that's maybe a, a conversation for another time. We'll just keep it to, sure. to our masculine conversation now, which mean, which leads that's me to that. what does it mean to quote, be a man? Mm. Great question. You know, I think this is one of those questions that, uh, so many answers people like to ask what's the meaning of life and when i was younger i thought of that question a lot what is the meaning of life and the answer i came up with was the meaning of life is to find its meaning is to give it its its meaning what is what does it mean to you and when people ask what does it mean to be a man my answer is very similar to be a man is to be on that journey to discover what it means to be a man that is no correct answer a lot of people will say to be a man is to protect, provide, and um, what's that thing? Preserve or something? That's from the, that's from that's from another podcast. <laughs> but that's like this uh, the the model of a very very big mass community online, right? To be a man is to protect, preserve, and provide, or something like that. And a lot of other people say, you know, to be a man is to just have a penis that's <laughs> that's what it is or or even more simple than that is to identify as a male it has nothing to do with your genitalia you just need to identify with it mentally emotionally spiritually and um i think that even as someone who has been in and uh, men's coaching men's work scene for many many years now mm, i don't think that any that i am in a position to say which one of these is correct or is the one there is no one um, you get to discover what it is a man for yourself. And when you find your answers, luckily for you, there will be a community in the manosphere that resonates with you. Whether you come to an answer that you just need to identify with being a male, there's a community for you. Whether you come to the more kind of more traditionalist meaning of what it means to be a man, again, there's a community for you. And I think that's what's so wonderful about the modern men's movement is that it has come to the space of having so many little sub-genres and sub-spaces now that whatever you feel like it means to you, you will find a community, you will find a brotherhood. And that I think is a unifying element between any definition and all, any and all definitions that you will find. That being a man is not a lonely journey. Being a man is not about being a lone wolf. Being a man does come with being a community member, being a brother, being a friend, being supportive and being supported. 
And for me personally, that's the most beautiful part of this journey of, of discovering manhood. And you said spiritually, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm a Christian. Uh, what religion mm-hmm. do you practice, Martin? I don't practice any religion specifically, but uh, I do have a tendency to resonate a lot with Eastern philosophies like uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, mostly not non-dualistic religions. So I believe that we live in a dualistic, a reality that seems dualistic, that seems to have two opposing sides, but that is an illusion and there's actually only one higher power. There's only one God. That's my belief. Do you believe it that every human has a soul? Yeah, I definitely do. Mm-hmm. Martin, let me ask you this then. If you believe mm-hmm. in a soul, does mm-hmm. the soul have a gender? I don't believe the soul has a gender, no. Can you go a little bit more into that? So if I'm a man, shouldn't mm-hmm. my soul also be a man because I'm spiritually, physically, emotionally a man? Mm-hmm. Well, um, we'll have to go a little bit into detail of my personal worldview, which again comes from, um, so my, my personal spirituality is mostly influenced by Hinduism, right? The, where a lot of you know, schools of meditation and yoga come from. And I'm mainly influenced by this branch of Hinduism called Advaita Vedanta, which literally just means non-dualistic, right? There's no two parts there's only one and so the basic principle behind this school of spirituality is that even the illusion that there's men and women uh, even even the reality of there being men and women is kind of an illusion right our physical world is not really um, the ultimate reality there is a more subtle and yet more powerful reality behind that and that's the spiritual reality the reality of energy and the reality of god and so the way that I see it is that we live many lifetimes. I personally believe in reincarnation. And I believe that the soul that's, that you are, that's living its current lifetime, it might be living the experience of a man right now, and it's meant to live that experience, right? That's why discovering your own manhood is so important, because it's a part of the experience that's meant for your soul. However, when you go beyond this lifetime, in the next, you might be perhaps a woman or you might have a life where gender is not even a concept right you might live as a species or you might live in a reality where that's not even that's not even a thing and so yeah i know that this 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 is quite a deep dive and if you come from a different sort of religious background this might be a lot to take in but you know to answer your question that's why i believe that the soul has no gender our physical body and our current, you know, mental identity has a gender. And that that gender is a part of the human experience that you're meant to have in this world and on this planet. That's my personal view on it. And no, I know that you're not an expert on Christianity, but if Mm -hmm. you take a second to look at, and we're going to go back to that pressure side of males, Mm -hmm. If you look at the at Christianity just for a little bit, there are a mm-hmm. few things I would like to point out. Number one is that mm. the first person ever created, according to Christianity, was Adam, not Eve. Mm-hmm. Point number mm-hmm. two is that a lot of the leaders in the early Bible were male, mm-hmm. including mm-hmm. Uh, Noah, 
David, yep. Moses, Abraham. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you have the ultimate leader, which is Jesus, who was also male. Mm -hmm. God yep. himself is has male pronouns in the Bible. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm and priests nowadays and popes are male. Mm -hmm. How should mm -hmm. a Christian male view all of this patriarchy and Christianity? Mm -hmm. Is there an added pressure to be more spiritual mm -hmm. as a male? What are your thoughts? If you have any, what are your thoughts on those? Oh, great question, man. So I'm definitely not an expert on Christianity, but I love Christianity. I find a lot of wisdom in Christianity and um, I love Jesus as a figure in Christianity and in spirituality, but also as an example of a, Jesus is an amazing example of what we call the king archetype in men's work. So he is the holistic male leader. He is a male leader who is acting out of the values I mentioned earlier, compassion, love, empathy, kindness. Those are all the things that he stands for. And um and so I think that it's that 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 he's a beautiful representation of masculinity, actually. And I wish that you know followers of Christianity today would look at him in that context more than they look at sort of Christianity versus the world, right? Um, is there an added pressure? You know, what should a Christian man make of so much patriarchy in, in the Christian doctrine? Well, um, you know, when I look at any religion or branch of spirituality, I always look at the context from which it was born from. So the kind of spirituality that I gravitate towards, the Hinduism and Buddhism and et cetera, it also brings with itself a lot of misogyny, right? So for example, in Hinduism originally, as per the Sanskrit texts, uh, a woman cannot reach enlightenment, right? A woman's soul cannot get salvation from the woman's body. She has to be reborn as a man first. Right. And so when you study these principles, you have to ask yourself, okay, you know, this whole thing about non duality and still in reincarnation. Okay, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. Wait, women cannot reach an enlightenment? Hold on, that doesn't make much sense. And that's where you have to zoom out a little bit and, and look at the context of where the spiritual principles came from and understand that the people who wrote those texts, they lived in a cultural and social context themselves and they wrote the text accordingly to those and i think the same thing happened in the bible you know when the bible was written uh, you know the old testament was written what four five thousand years ago or something i'm i'm not an expert right something you know more than two thousand years ago and then the new testament was written some two thousand ish years ago um people were still living in an extremely male dominated society in fact in the bible where uh, Jesus takes on, um, I'm not sure what uh, her English name is in the Bible, Maria Teresa? I believe you're referring to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, thank you. Thank you so much. The Hungarian and Spanish names <laughs> are getting mixed up in my brain. So for example, uh, taking on someone like her who was a prostitute, right? In that, at that time, in that culture context, for a manly man of that time, I'm sure it would have been outrageous. Right, just the idea that the Son of God is spending time in the company of a prostitute would have been insane. Even today, you can feel the paradoxical power in that. And so you have to look at that and understand, okay, well, the authors of those texts did their best to communicate 
the empathy and love towards women in the text. You know, that would be my personal view. My, my personal interpretation would be this. They did that. So, for example, through the role of Maria Magdalena. And so when you look back and say, oh, well, there's so much patriarchy in Christianity, you know, I'm not a Christian, so I'm not, not no one to say what to discard and what to keep. But uh, from my personal perspective, that patriarchy is there as a sign of the times that the text was written in. And as our times evolve, there's, I, I don't, I personally don't see anything wrong with keeping what serves you during these times and not applying or not feeling burdened by the parts that are a sign of um, the, the older times that the text was written in. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. I really appreciate your answer. Uh, let's move on to relationships. And one of the mm -hmm. things that I do whenever I am assigned to teach science is human growth and development. And it mm -hmm. was the very first year, this was 2010. And, you know, when we talk about human growth and development, we actually talk from the beginning of when a man meets a woman and that the man is supposed to ask out the, the or a boy is supposed to start asking out a girl on a date, et cetera, et cetera. And then mm -hmm. I, somebody asked me, well, Mrs. Zuko, what if it's, two gay men. And that got mm -hmm. me thinking. And I said, guys, I just don't know. And so I went home and I did some research and two words popped out that it, when it's two homosexuals, usually you have one that is dominant and one that is recessive. And the dominant one is usually the one that will approach this, this other person. And it's the dominant one that usually pays for the first date, picks them up, et cetera, et cetera. And so that changed my framework completely from a straight couple, man and woman, to, mm -hmm. well, now you have two people in a relationship and one is presumably mm -hmm. dominant and one is presumably recessive. And then, and then I said, mm -hmm. well, are these two statuses static? Is one mm -hmm. always the dominant? Is one always the recessive? And my answer is no. You have maybe a majority of one person being dominant and recessive, but those roles mm -hmm. can switch and they probably switch mm -hmm. often. So it's to say mm -hmm. that I am married to my wife. I've been married to her for eight years. And yes, I was dominant in the beginning, but there have been points in our relationship where she takes the dominant role and I'm recessive and I'm perfectly fine with that because I understand and I'm being honest with myself that I cannot be the dominant person in the relationship forever. Mm -hmm. I guess my question to you is, I know it's a long, it's, I know it's a lot to, to take in. Should men strive to be the dominant person in the relationship more often than not? Mm. Your question is, you know, if I'm asking the question literally more often than not, then my answer would probably be yes, because the truth of the matter is that it is more often than not that the man takes on the masculine pole of the relationship and the woman takes on the feminine pole of the relationship. What do I mean by this? Exactly what you described, whether the relationship is between a man and a woman, man and man, woman and woman, gender fluid individual and gender fluid individual, it really does not matter. These are just sort of, you know, we can put any label on it. Uh, there will be a dominant and recessive pole. And I call these masculine and feminine because those labels are very sort of you know, they're here, they've been used and they kind of make sense. And so no matter what kind of relationship you're in, there will be a masculine and feminine pole. Most often at the start of the relationship, the man takes on the masculine pole and the woman 
feels comfortable in the feminine pole, though there are exceptions. Of course, I really don't want anyone to come at me with, you know, but women can too. Yes, yes, they absolutely can. And you know what? If you're a man who is a bit more, you know, shy and withdrawn and passive and you actually like a woman kind of taking the first steps or, 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 or pushing the connection forward uh, and you find your match, good for you. Amazing. Uh, because I've worked as a man's confidence coach and have coached guys through confidence and dating and relationships for years, I know that that rarely happens. Usually when a man is feeling passive and withdrawn, he has to overcome that and step into his natural masculine energy in order to seduce a woman. That is kind of, if you want to put it this way, our natural you know, gen genetically embedded mating ritual. That's kind of how it works. You know, the woman drops a little sign, which is a little hair flip, a little look over the shoulder, a little, you know, move of uh, her body. And us men, we have to pick that up and we have to, again, embody that masculine, masculine energy, which initiates, penetrates and leads. So we have to initiate the connection. We have to penetrate through the blockages of uncertainty and insecurity. And we have to lead that connection into fruition. And that's our job as, as men. Usually there are, of course, exceptions, but most of the times this is how it happens. And as relationships grow and mature, of course, uh, you know, I'm currently engaged. I'm planning to marry my partner soon. We've been together for um, over three years, nearly four years. And I've experienced the same thing. There were times when I needed to fall back and fall a little bit into the feminine pole and let her take more of the masculine role. Though as soon as I felt that things in the relationship were getting maybe just a little bit more unstable because she was forced to be in that pole longer than she was comfortable, I had to get off my ass and kind of restore the order of things. You know, I had to pull, pull my shit together and step back into the masculine pole and she had to, well, she didn't have to, she was happy to kind of go back into the little bit more passive feminine role. And that's how it is natural between us. I always encourage men and women to explore what those poles and what those roles in their relationships are. In many relationships, they're extremely balanced. So in many relationships, the partners will have to be on 50-50, right? They will have to push, gently push through that masculine a lot, but also be ready to just kind of lay back listen, receive, and be a bit more passive just as much. And in many other relationships, like in ours, it seems from what we've shared, men will have to overcome their own obstacles and have to step into the masculine and they'll have to create space for the women to fall into the feminine and, and uh, find comfort there. All right, Martin, I just showed you a mm -hmm. clip of a stand-up comedian. His name is Nate. I'm not even going to say his mm -hmm. last name, Bargatz. B-A-R-G-A-T-Z-E, if you want to look him up. And he describes how his first grade daughter goes to school. And mm -hmm. apparently the teachers there don't know which bus she's on. And they have the wife's number and his number on the emergency contact card. And they call him and they say, do you know what bus she goes on? And so he takes this and runs with it and says, I'm her dad. You decided to call mm -hmm. dad first and not mom. Why would you do such a mm -hmm. thing? So let's go a little bit into masculinity and fatherhood. Mm -hmm. Is it true that in a lot of cases, fatherhood, as fathers, men just fall back when it 
comes to taking care of our kids? Well, there's certainly a social stigma that says yes. Can you go a little bit more into that? You know, that clip that you showed me is uh, something that a lot of people would call boomer humor, which is kind of the kind of humor that's, that, that finds a certain, these jokes funny, like, I like beer, I like football, I hate my wife. My wife wants me to do things. What is she, crazy? Ha ha. That, that sort of humor, which is this self, what do you even call it? Self-degrading sort of humor and... Um, mm, you know, tries to give a humorous twist to a toxic relationship and social dynamic, in my opinion. And is it a little bit funny? Yeah, maybe. But I would certainly be embarrassed uh, as a father to not know what bus my daughter is on because it just makes it seem like you're unprepared as a dad. You know, what if there's an emergency? And there will most likely be an emergency at least once in your lifetime. Definitely a very good idea to know what bus your daughter's on, you know, what food allergies she has, what blood type she has, how to braid her hair. And, you know, I'm not a father, so maybe I'm not qualified to comment on this. And maybe the day I become a father, I will understand why fathers don't know the, the bus numbers of their daughters. But from my perspective currently, to be a good father, you have to spend time with your children and you have to be there for them. You have to be present with them. You cannot be absent. You cannot be, well, I mean, you can, of course, you can choose to be absent, but that will have its consequences. You know, the, what uh, this comedian is kind of enacting here is that like, you know, don't you know, I'm the father who doesn't know anything. I work. And with that, he's kind of empowering the stereotype. Like I work all the time and then I come home, I drink beer and I watch football. You know, that's what I do because I'm a man and that's what a father does. And that's very sad in my opinion, because we've empowered that stereotype, we've empowered that culture of masculinity, and that's exactly the culture of masculinity that we spoke about, exactly the culture of masculinity that, that created the quality of leadership that we have today globally. And I think it's sad. And this is exactly the stereotype that I am working against. This is the stereotype that I am working on breaking every single day when I coach men, when I coach leaders of male transformation, and when I share my content, um, I want to show men that there is another way and that there's actually a lot of fulfillment and love and purpose uh, and joy to be found in being a man who does know his daughter's school bus number. <laughs> Very interesting that you said that. And I want to pick up on something you said. As fathers, we need to be more present in our kids' lives. You need to know what their food allergies are. You need to know what bus number they take uh, about their homework and stuff like that. And so I'll postulate something to you. What if, let's say, the wife or the mom is really on top of it, right? Is doing the kids' homework with them, talks to the teacher to make sure that their grades and, and you know, the doctor's appointments are being made. And, they, mm -hmm. and that mom takes on that natural role of taking care of the kids, and when the mom asks, hey, can you do this for me? Can you take them here? The dad obliges and does so. Mm -hmm. But you're saying, no, you need to make, they take that extra step and be more involved in your child's life, mm -hmm. correct? Well, I'm not necessarily saying that there's anything wrong with the mother taking on the role of, uh, you know, being the, the homemaker and sort of the, the person that takes care of, of the kids. That's actually most likely the setup that I'll be going for with my current partner. You know, we naturally have that relationship dynamic. 
I'm naturally a more sort of work-focused person. She's naturally a better person at taking care of the home. So that sort of team effort would make sense. Either way, you know, if she was the one taking them to school, from school, to soccer practice, from soccer practice, uh, cooking them food and, and, and et cetera, and I was working eight-hour, 10-hour days, which I hopefully won't have to, um, I already am not. I have, a, I have a much more free work schedule. Thank God. Thanks for to being an online entrepreneur, right? But you know, even if that was the setup, that sort of old school mom working dad, uh, sort of mm, homey mom setup, even then, I think it's so important to at least know the details of your kids' lives, right? Be curious, be interested. And I know that because that's what I found very valuable in, in my life as a child from my parents. And at times, uh, even though they tried their best, that's what was missing from my parents. And that's something that scarred me and left me with insecurities that I had to work on, left me with traumas that I had to work on. So I know it's importance and it doesn't matter how much you work or how focused you are on certain ventures in your life as a man, you should never be taking that time away from your kids. Um, and so I'm not saying that there's something wrong with that setup, but even if that's the setup that you have in your life, well, do your best to still spend as much quality time with your kids as possible. I think your kids definitely need to see you and talk to you and interact with you every day. I'm not saying that out of that. I don't have, you know, some peer reviewed scientific study for that. I'm saying that out of human instinct, I think that's what makes sense, right? For kids to see their father every day and talk to him, interact with him every day. And for you to know the basics about them as as human beings you know they're and they're, they're tiny individuals and they might be you know small and silly right now but they are you know they're developing personalities and they're developing character and you need to know certain things you know i personally i am you could call be a, a control freak of some sort right it's a superpower and a weakness you know i like to know a lot of things right i like to be prepared for emergencies i like to have long-term plans with plan b plan c plan d and I, and I can tell you, you know, in business that has come in handy and that has benefited me greatly, uh, me and my partner and, and, and the clients I've worked with, it has benefited all of us greatly. I know that that's the kind of approach I would try, uh, try to take to parenting as well. I would definitely not be comfortable not knowing my kid's bus number. I can tell you that, you know, I'll need to know their bus number. I'll need to know, I'll need to have access to their weekly schedules. I'll need to know what kind of foods they eat, what kind of foods they don't eat. I'll need to know what are the things that calm them down when they're upset. I'll need to know all of these things, even if I'm not the one taking care of them, because I know that there will be a time when my wife is sick or she's busy and I will need to jump in and I need to be prepared for that time. So I would like to think that that's not the control freak in me. I would like to think that that's just sort of the fatherly, manly instinct in me, rather. And one of the last questions I wanted to ask you is this concept mm -hmm. of a man cave. You know, this, this <laughs> special room where men go and they yeah. sit in their house and they have a big TV surround sound. And if they have extra space, uh -huh. they'll put man stuff up like beers, maybe a pool table. Yeah. What are your thoughts yeah. on men who can afford it having a quote-unquote man cave oh i would love to have one i'd love <laughs> to have one shout out shout out to all the men who have man caves yeah i think that's lovely i would love to have a man cave it would definitely have a 
My dream man cave features in a sort of sunken into the floor couch. So you're almost sitting on the floor, but not really, just just tiny bit raised up. It features an indoor fireplace um, with a, um, a an ideal, well, nice setup to watch some UFC fights. Maybe listen to some Joe Rogan. Yeah, absolutely. It probably features a bit of a gym, a boxing bag. I'm not a drinker, but it would probably feature a bar just so I can host my friends and, and give them a few shots of, uh, if I do drink, it's probably mezcal. And I would love to have a, a pinball machine, a popcorn machine, and maybe like uh, one of those things that, that claw that you can pick toys with. That's, uh, <laughs> that's what I would put in my mind cave. And I see, I see nothing wrong with that. You know, I think it's a, it's a sacred space and you fill it up with whatever you want. You know, as you can tell, I am not, I'm, you know, if you have to place me in a spectrum, you know, from the manoverse, I'm probably a bit more on the sort of liberal, open-minded, spiritual, esoteric side of being a, a man's coach and, and men's work facilitator. I'm not super traditionalist, but I am into a lot of old school manly stuff. You know, I'm really into fighting and meat and, and things like that. So having a little sacred space for me and my male friends um to to do those things yeah i would love that and you know what i'll probably sneak in my wife sometimes as well and we will do the same thing so it wouldn't be so much a man cave it would just be like an entertainment room but still <laughs> so let me ask you you don't think that a man cave feeds mm -hmm. into male toxicity i mean uh, uh do, honestly i don't i don't really see how uh, you know so what, what unless, so i'm getting from you is you make of it mm -hmm. what it is yeah you make of it what it is like you know if could you turn a man cave into uh toxic male culture like if there's a husband and you know he's secretive about his hobbies and he only lets his ma male friends inside this man cave and his wife doesn't even know what it is. You know, there were renovations in the house and he spent all of their money from their shared bank account. They shouldn't, she doesn't even know what's going on mm. there. There's a stripper pole going inside in there. And, you know, in that case, is that, you know, is, is there a little bit of toxicity there? Yeah, but it has nothing to do with the man cave. You know, it has all to do with that certain relationship or that individual man cave as a concept. You know, it just so it, it's very telling how man cave uh, that represents different things to to both of us because the way you brought it up, it represented something potentially toxic for you, and the way I responded, it represented something really fun to me because you had a certain association with it, and I had a certain association with it, and I think this applies to so many things across uh, you know the topic of men's work and men's mental health. People have different associations. I associate a man cave with fun, brotherhood, community, quality time with your friends. Uh, and, you know, it's not like women will be forbidden from entering. In fact, if this was a reality, it'd probably be me, my buddies, and our girlfriends or, or wives or fiancés, you know, realistically. So maybe that's maybe that's not even the man cave of your definition. I'm, I'm not even, is that, you know, what, what's, what's the man cave that you're talking about? All right, so just to clarify, thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I looked at it as I'm very logic when I, when I talk. So mm -hmm. if, if I say man cave, it, mm -hmm. it's for real a man cave. So my guard right. was brought down when you said, 
oh, my wife will be in there too. And at that point, it would probably be an entertainment room. And I, if my personal opinion is yes, mine will have a big TV, surround sound, a pool table, a ping pong Mm. table, darts, a a bar, right? And and yes, of course, my wife will come in. But the example that Mm -hmm. you gave, and again, Mm -hmm. a man cave is purely, what is it? Subjective. You make of it what it is. If you have a stripper pole in your man cave and it's not for your wife, yeah, there's going to be a big issue with that. And a lot of times as a podcast host, what I do is I play devil's advocate and I didn't play devil's. I didn't say devil's advocate when I was explaining, well, don't you think it's could be toxic? I mean, I, that question wasn't meant to be me playing devil's advocate. So just wanted to make that clear. Uh, I as well agree. But I also think mm-hmm. it's fair that if a husband yeah. has a man cave, the woman needs her space as well. Yeah. Well, I do want to say one thing, and I agree with you, by the way, 100%. Um, I do want to say that there is something about sacred spaces, right? So there's something about having a an office. You know, I'm sitting in my office room right now, and it's a room specifically for work, even though it has turned a little bit into my man cave, to be honest, because it's such a, it's like a sacred me space. And this is where I do a lot of my own journaling. And this is where I do a lot of my research and a lot of, I do all of my coaching work in here. And this space has power, you know, because of that reason. And, um, you know, I'm sure all of us have heard the advice to not, you know, not be on your phone in the bed and not bring work into the bedroom because that ruins the energy of the space. And, and that's true because your brain, your mind has associations with different spaces. So for that reason, I think there's something to be said about sacred spaces. And if a man cave is like a sacred space for you as a man and for your male friends to, you know, go on that journey of, of discovering manhood together um, and enjoy quality time together. That's amazing, you know, and should women have women caves too, woman caves too? Yeah, absolutely. I encourage it. I think that will be fantastic as well, you know, for all of us to kind of explore these things together in the companionship of our, of our brothers and sisters. I think that's that's what this movement, the conscious men and, and the conscious woman movement is is all about. Yeah, I'm all for it. You've said one particular word a few times, and I want to ask you that. Have you by any chance read a book by Robert Greene called The 48 Laws of Power? Mm, Yes, I have. Interesting. It's actually on Mm -hmm. my reading list for 2022. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How should men associate themselves with power? Well, first of all, be aware that the 48 Laws of Power is an extremely Machiavellian book. It is written from, it's very entertaining because it's written from the perspective of really like a, um, it feels a little bit outdated, like a Roman general, a lo- Roman military leader of some sort. Like it's very, it's, 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 it's written in a style that's very cruel, very sort of military-esque. It's not like this is how you, you know, how to win friends and influence people is already kind of a manipulative title, right? That's very popular. But the 48 Laws of Power takes that and multiplies it by a thousand. Very entertaining and insightful read. But should people live by those 48 laws? I do not think so. I don't advocate that sort of strategic, manipulative way of um, developing yourself and developing your relationships. 
I think it makes it lose its humanity and soul and true joy and true connection, personally. But what is man's relationship to, to power? Well, I think that we all have our relationship to, uh, we all have individual relationships to power. Um, we discussed a lot of aspects of manhood in relationship to power earlier on about the pressures that we deal with, the expectations, the social expectations we deal with as men. But what I would like to say is that whether you are a man or a woman or whatever, whatever you identify with and whatever part of the world you're in, whatever you know, part of society you belong to, there is always an inner power available to you. And we do a lot. We seek power a lot. And we seek power usually because we want to get away from pain. We want to hide from fear. We want to feel safe. All of us have experienced times throughout our life when we were not safe, especially when we're young. Those times are very traumatic. And oftentimes we, when we grow up, we try to be the superhero we didn't have when we needed. We try to be, uh, we try to create this shell that can protect that child that once got wounded and make sure that the child is always going to be safe. And we do this by seeking external power. We think that a certain job, job title, status, salary, uh, neighborhood we live in or owning property or owning certain possessions and certain titles, certifications is going to afford us that power. But what I can tell anybody listening is that um, you will never find that safety that you're seeking for that wounded child within from seeking external power. That gap will never be filled. You can only find that safety by discovering that you are already safe. You always have been safe and you do that through unlocking your inner power. In fact, knowing that and practicing that and embodying that is your inner power. So I'm not sure if I want to speak on what is man's relationship to power. I think many much smarter, much more intellectual, much better educated men than me have spoken on that. But what I can say is that what I wish for men of today and humanity of today too is is to realize that we can unlock our inner power and that there's so much joy, love, and fulfillment in that. Excellent way to end it. Martin, thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast. I really appreciate it. Martin, tell the audience about you, where to find you and your services. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Hector. Thanks so much for having me on. You're an excellent host and I really enjoy being on the podcast. Uh, Everybody can find me on, first of all, Instagram is my main platform. So you can find me on at the Martin Mezay. That is the Martin Mezay, M-E-Z-E-I. That is my Instagram handle. You can also find me on my website, mindfulmasculinity.org. That's mindfulmasculinity.org. And you have all of my contact, uh, contact information there as well. And for someone looking for your services, are you looking for any specific mm -hmm. clients? Yes. Currently, I'm working with leaders of masculine transformation. So anybody that wants to or already is actively coaching men or works in the space of masculine transformation, helping men in any way, shape or form, I have an active 
mastermind, which is a group of men who are fellow men's coaches, fellow leaders of masculine transformation. And we are always working on growing their businesses, their coaching practices, and their impact in the world so they can live their purpose. And yes, on one hand, thrive financially, but of course, on the other hand, impact men and today's world in a positive way. And I also offer one-on-one -on -one coaching in this area, uh, which has been the most fulfilling part of my job and has been getting my clients some incredible results. So if anybody feels inspired by this podcast and wants to find out more about these offerings, then again, you can find me on my Instagram. Always feel free to reach out. And I'm more than happy to discuss all the details without any uh, pressure or commitment whatsoever. And tell us about your two books that you self-published. Yes. So as a confidence coach for men, I have self-published two books. One of them was called Five Steps to Mindful Masculinity. And the second one was called The Seven Secrets to Authentic Confidence. Both of these books were more confidence, dating, and relationship oriented for men. And right now I am working on my third book, which is going to be an official release if all things go well. This book um, is, this is actually the first time I talk about it publicly. It is about 80% done, still in the works. It's called Men's Coach Business Blueprint. So this is going to be a book for people that want to become men's coaches or want to go on that mission of being a leader of masculine transformation. And I want to help people build businesses that are honest, authentic, congruent, and truly serve people, truly make a positive impact in the world, while also benefiting the people building them. You do not have to fake it till you make it. You do not have to be uh, manipulative and fake in order to build a successful business. You can do it while being 100% authentic and helping people and still have it be an extremely lucrative venture. And um, I want people to realize this, that I want to change the coaching industry in this way because there has been way too much wishy-washiness and way too much deception um, in this field. So that's the mission that I'm on currently. This podcast episode is titled, What It Means to Be a Man with Martin Mazay. Thank you, Martin, once again for being on the podcast. Thank you, Hector, and thank you, everyone, for listening. We enjoyed being here. And that will do it for this episode of the Life Teacher Podcast. Thank you for listening.